Let's pray. Oh, God, that's what we need, total praise. Total praise when we don't feel like praising you at all. That's kind of the, the backstory to, to these few moments we have left together. Total praise. Oh, God, infuse the story. And make it fit for us each. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a story I bet you have never heard before in your life, maybe. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a very good king. He was a great leader and a very bad devil. And so one day, Satan shows up in the throne room itself. I imagine Satan sitting right before, right beside, right beside the king. Yo, king, you're looking good today. (laughs) If that is a look of happy contentment on a face, if I've ever seen one, I suppose you have every right to be happy given who you are, the gifts you have, the leadership you bring. You know, if you just run the numbers again, king, you remember the numbers when you became king? Puny and poor, this nation. Look at it now. You've done this. Good on you, your majesty. Good on you. One little fly in the ointment, however. I'm a little worried for you, king. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. You see, the enemies that you have living all around you, they don't know how strong you really are. You haven't sent the word out. Makes me wonder if you could marshal every able-bodied young in your kingdom. How many would you have in your army? Oh, I know you're not supposed to take census to find that out, but you know what the problem is? I'm going to tell you. It's this theocracy business. God, God leading Israel. It's you, king. You have to have a human leader, and you're the leader. So I'm wondering, what would happen if you went ahead and commissioned a census Nobody has to know. Just do it low-key. But once you've taken the numbers, we could get them out. Just let them slip. And a few people hear. And the word gets to your enemies. He, David has that big an army. We'll never touch him. That's what I would do if I were you. And lo and behold, once upon a time, the good King David listened to the voice beside the throne. And he said, great idea. I think we'll do it. Open your Bible with me to that story that you've never read before, maybe. First Chronicles chapter, First Chronicles chapter 21. Check it, check it out. First Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 21. I'm going to be in the New International Version. You can bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible. It's going to be page 290 in your Pew Bible. Let's just take a look at this story for a moment because it opens up exactly as we've just described. Look at that. 21 verse 1, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And so David calls in the joint chief's chairman. Yo, Joel, got an idea. 
I want to find how, how many able-bodied young men that can bear a sword do we have. Let's do a little census. And Joab, I, I've got to tell you, Joab is a rascal. He's a scoundrel a lot of the time. But even here, he sniffs the devil and he responds, king. Well, you got his response right here in verse 3. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Aren't you the happy singer of Israel? And aren't your songs, your psalms all filled with this, I trust God? Why, do we, why would you do this? But notice verse 4. But the king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem nine months and 20 days later, later according to 2 Samuel, that has the, the same account. Nine months and 20 days la- later. O king, we've done as you asked. And here comes the report, verse 5. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David and all Israel. There were 1,100,000 men who could handle the sword, including 470,000 in the home state of Judah where the king is from. And something happens when he hears 1.1 million. You've got an army, wow, of 1.1 million. He's just leaning back for a high five, and every alarm bell in his conscience, every red light, ding, 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 flash, 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 and he realizes, my God, what have I done to you? Drop down. Those are his words. Verse 8, then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you. Oh, God, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. What was I thinking? Knock, knock. Who is it? It's Gad. Oh, Gad, the prophet. Oh, so you've heard. Uh, I have. God knows he does. And your majesty... God cannot sit by and allow this challenge to his rule in Israel go unrequited. So I've been sent to you to give you three options. You choose. These are your three options. Option number one, for three years, a devastating famine in your land. For three months, option number two, your enemy ravaging you and your people. Or three. For three days, a destructive pestilence for your people. I'll give you some time to think about it. I'll come back. Stop! And David cries out to Gad. Look at this. Verse 13, David said to Gad, Oh, I am in deep distress. Please, 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 please. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into human hands. I don't want the enemy here, not even for three months. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. In other words, give me, give me those three days. And Gad said, very well. The clock begins when I walk out this door. 72-hour clock. We're not told what the pestilence is. All we're told is that from Dan in the north all the way to Beersheba in the south, Israelites start dropping like flies. And before the 72 hours are up, 70,000 
Israelites are dead, dead. It's kind of like, it must have been like when, when God was in the wilderness with the children of Israel. You remember that? And one day they said, well, we've had it with your leadership. Out of here. God said, okay, okay, I'm backing up. But you wish I hadn't because God had been holding them at bay, these venomous vipers who then sneak into the camp and with their poison take down thousands. This is it. Okay, king, you're the big, you're the big head honcho around here. Have at it. Let's see what you can do. Boom, 70,000 dead. David now is dressed in sackcloth, ashes, with a board of elders, they're, uh, they're down on their knees pleading with God. The 72 hours not quite up because there's one more destructive act. Drop down to verse 16. And David looked up while they were in this prayer service. David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over the capital city, Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. And David says to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd. You see, leaders are shepherds. I, the shepherd. We just had five leaders ordained as shepherds. I, the shepherd, have sinned. I have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family. But do not let this plague remain on your people. Stop the plague. Knock, knock. Scad, God just heard you. His instructions build an altar on the spot where you see the angel. David scrambles to obey. Offer sacrifices. He offers sacrifices. And now watch this. Verse 26. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings there. And he called on the Lord and hallelujah, look at this, guys. And hallelujah, the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. God nukes, shoom, and that, that altar's gone. God nukes the sacrifice from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Isn't that something? Wow. You're forgiven. The king. It's over. I forget it now. I forget it. I forget it. You're forgiven. God has mercy on the foolish, guilty king. David is so relieved with joy that he races from that spot back to the palace, grabs a pen, and begins to compose a new song, a new prayer, a new psalm. And you and I, I, Jen... Members, you and me as well, desperately need what David has embedded in this profound praise of hope. I, Jen. Hey, are you acquainted with, the, are you acquainted with, this, with this little, uh, this, this little descri- description? I, Jen, the generation? I, Jen? I had some friends who gave me a book just last week. Wow. The book's written by a psychologist at San Diego State University. Her name, Jean Twenge. Here's the title of the book, iGen, little I and then capital G. iGen, why today's super-connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood, and what that means for the rest of us. She got the whole book in a title. (laughs) Apparently, she's the one who has invented this moniker, iGen, for this new generation. That's all those born, listen... Do the arithmetic. All those born between 1995 and 2012. 
these, sociolo- these, these sociology uh, demographics are generally 17 to 19 years long. So if you're born from 1995 to 2012, do the, do, do, do the arithmetic. If you're born in 1995, you would be 22 years old now. So you've got the 22-year-olds, and coming, in, coming, coming up behind them, you have the 20-year-olds, and then you have the 19-year-olds, and then you have the 18-year-olds, and good night. Look at this, 18 to 22. That is the average demographic for American colleges and universities. We're talking about university students right here. iGen. iGens. You know why she calls them iGens? Because these kids who are alive today were born with the eye, with the Internet wired into their brains and a smartphone stuck forever in their hands, and their walls papered with social media. I have some iGen friends on this campus. I love hanging around them. they got a lot of energy. They have a crazy sense of humor. But look out. I could not believe this when when I read the book last week. Listen to this. This stunned me. The mental and emotional stress this new generation is living with, in spite of all that energy. Let me, put, uh, uh, let me put Gene Twenge on the screen for you. You have this in a study guide that you can take home. In 2016, I'm quoting her now, for the first time, you got iGen right here. This is iGen right here, okay? In 2016, for the first time, the majority of entering college students described their mental health as below average. The sudden sharp rise in depressive symptoms occurred at almost exactly the same time that smartphones became ubiquitous and in-person interaction plummeted. She says it's not an accident. Twenge goes on to report that screening tests show, and I'm quoting her again, a shocking rise in depression in a short period of time. Listen to this. With 56% more teens experiencing a major depressive episode in 2015 than in 2010, and 60% experiencing severe impairment. They're the highest entering class in college to self-identify, I have mental health issues that rank me lower than average. My health is not good mentally. The numbers are now in. One out of 19 teenagers, one out of 11 young adults are experiencing, as she puts it here, clinically diagnosable major depression. I wish you could have been here last Friday night. It's great last night. It wasn't here, though. We were with uh, Dan Jackson over in HPAC. But last Friday night, a week ago, Proximity Vespers here, a young college student, her name, Sarah Hill, she tells... The first-person account, it is a testimony of her suicidal depression and how the baptism of the Holy Spirit was God's turning her around. You know what? When she tells that story, and there are people here who are not iGen, a bunch of you, when she tells that story, it's not good news, but it's a reassurance that those of us who are a little bit older than I, Jen, those of us who've been on the way a little longer, aren't so alone as we once thought. You used to think, we used to think, you know, college kids, happy-go-lucky, got nothing, got nothing. This generation, more than any other college kids, is struggling to survive emotionally and mentally. <laughs> so David, who goes through this 
horrendous mental, this emotional meltdown, the spiral of depression, the toxic mix of, mix of, of personal guilt and helpless inability to change his circumstances. When David composes a song of healing and hope, and that's where we're going with this, uh, it turns out it's not just for I, Jen, it's for all of us, this song. In fact, I'll tell you this. I've been keeping prayer lists for a long time where I put my friends and people I know on the list. I have never in my life had so many on my prayer list who are friends of mine, my age and younger, who are battling for their very life right now. I've never had this many. It's not just the young. It's all of us. You may not be suffering physically, and that's okay, but you may be battling mentally. You may be battling emotionally. And by the way, you don't need to be embarrassed about that either because we all face it. It's life. It's, it's like the opening words, M. Scott Peck's book, what is it, 20, 30 years ago, The Road Less Traveled. The opening three words, put it on the screen. Life is difficult. Welcome to the human race. But for I, Jen, and for the third millennials that we all are, it is compoundedly more difficult today. That's the deal. So now, we got to go to this. So David composes this beautiful psalm. you got to go. Come on. Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Middle of your Bible. Psalm 30. Find it. Let's read this psalm. Uh, you'll see. Scholars believe that, in fact, he wrote this after the meltdown that we just relived together. Psalm 30. Here we go. Verse 1. I will exalt you, O Lord. Total praise. I bring total praise to you, dear God. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. That's a Hebrew word that, that pictures the lowering of a bucket into a very deep well, dark well. And then you, you pull it, you pull it, you pull it. You lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Remember him saying, I don't, I don't care which punishment you send. Just don't put the enemies on me. Don't let my enemies gloat over me. Keep going. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. What are you talking about, David? Oh, Lord, you brought me up from the realm of the dead. I thought I was going to die. That's the realm of Sheol. You brought me up from the realm just before I went into that grave. You spared me from going down to the pit. Ah, total praise again. Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name. And then here comes verse 5. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Keep reading. Weeping may endure for the night, but rejoicing, joy comes in the morning. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. We have a friend. We have a friend, and every time Karen and I go to stay with him, spend a night, he always, invariably, he always opens up our time in, the, in his house with these words. Hey, Dwight, I just want to remind you that house guests and dead fish have this in common. They all begin to stink after three days. <laughs> There's the door. Go. Don't stay three days. Please deliver us. That's exactly the language that the psalmist is using here. David is using. He's describing weeping as a house guest. Oh, he's lingering. He's weeping may linger over the night. Weeping may stay in your house and in your heart over the night, but boom, the dawn. And the Hebrew reads, that, reads this way. There's no verb in the Hebrew. At dawn, joy, because our house guest is gone. He's gone. Yes. Weeping may endure for the night, 
but rejoicing, joy comes in the morning. There's some powerful poetic parallelism going on here, and you need to see this. I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, well, David, first, the, the, the poet, the singer, he describes anger. Okay, he's got the anger. Then he says, but anger leads to favor. Then the next one, he, he describes a moment of anger, but a lifetime of, of favor. Then he describes the night, but it's paralleled with the morning. And then he describes weeping, but it's paralleled with, Jew, with, with joy. Oh, good news, David says. Good news. Weeping, the house guest will stay only one night. But then comes the morning. Joy. Wow. Oh, but that's right. I have a confession to make. He's so caught up in this total praise. Oops. And he goes straight to his confession. What we just experienced a moment ago. Look, look at him. Verse 6. When I felt secure. Okay. Mr. Confident. Mr. Cocky Leader. Give me a census. How big is my army? When I felt secure, I said in my own heart, I will never be shaken. I will never topple. The enemies are no threat to me. But, Lord, when you favored me, it was you. It was you who made my royal mountain stand firm. It wasn't me. Oh, but then when you hid your face from me, I was dismayed. And so to you I called. To the Lord I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silenced? If I go down to the pit, God, if I die now, you have no praise for me. Do you understand that? I cannot praise you. No total praise. Nothing. If I go to this grave... Don't let me go. Be breathing. Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. And then he just can't keep back from that total praise. And now here comes the title of our little mini-series, straight out of the Bible, verse 11. You turned my mourning into dancing. You turned my mourning into dancing. I'm quoting the Bible. You turned my mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, total praise. I praise you forever. Amen. Isn't that great? Total praise. You turned my mourning into dancing again. You ever heard that song? Some of you are trying to sing it. Because, Dwight, we sure know you aren't singing it. I think, of, I think of those words by Tommy Walker and Ron Kennelly. You've turned my morning into dancing again. You've lifted my sorrows. I can't stay silent. I must sing for your joy has come. No, 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 no. No. That... that. Have you, ever noticed that, have you ever noticed that when a child gets good news, no kidding, when a child gets good news, what does a child instinctively do? Daddy comes home early. Hey, kids, we're going to the beach today. I I'm taking the rest of the day off. Hey, the mama says, hey, grandma's coming. Whoa, we're going to have a party tonight. What does a little child do naturally without restraint when good news dawns upon that young mind? Starts dancing. Huh? No, you don't do that. You don't do that. What does a child do? The child responds physically. And when I told this story in first service, my friend uh, Skip McCarty, who used to be a pastor here, came up to me. He said, hey, Dwight, do you remember just a few months ago? And I had forgotten all about this. Listen to this. So I'm coming to the end of first service sermon. We have a little girl named Chloe. She's just precious. And so at the end of the sermon, we're just getting ready. Candace is sitting right over there. We're going to move now to the, uh, the, the 
the hymn at the end, and little Chloe can't stay still any longer. She comes flying out of her second row. She flies up here. She grabs my legs. Excuse me. Whoops. She grabs my legs and starts going round and round while she's holding on to my legs. And I'm saying, we're going to sing number and then whatever it was. And her mother is dying a thousand deaths. And I told her mother, Tanya, I said, Tanya, that was the most beautiful thing. That was the most beautiful thing. But why? Because she didn't know you're not supposed to show joy in church. She just thought it just flows naturally. You turn my morning into dancing again. You, you lifted my sorrows. I can't stay silent. I must sing for your joy has come. Look, at David is not dancing with the stars. Let's just get that clear. He's not dancing with the stars. He's dancing before the Almighty Lord of all stars. He's moving. Ellen White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets, he's moving to the beat of the, uh, the rhythm of the song. That's, that's her word. He's moving to the rhythm of what is being performed. He's moving to it. Why? Because you set me free. You turned my morning into dancing. You took my sackcloth and you gave me joy. Ah, wow. Could it happen here? It has to. Hey, iGen, everybody behind me, and iGen out there, it has to. That's, that's your only hope. Depressive, the most depressive generation in the history of record keeping. So what's up with that? The technology has conspired against us all, trust me. It's not just you, all of us. But God says, don't worry. When you get to feeling dark and mournful, I have a solution for you. And I want to share them now. Three, three mental health nuggets, then I'll talk about new life and pioneer, all right? And then we'll be done. Here they are. I want to share these with you. These are fascinating. If you want to read a chapter that will just lift your spirits in terms of mental health, there's a little classic called Ministry of Healing, and the chapter title is Mind Cure. I read it this last week. Man, I said, this is dynamite stuff. So I'm going to give you three mental health nuggets from uh, that chapter. Here we go. First one's on the screen, mental health nugget number one. Nothing tends more to promote health of body and of soul than does a spirit of gratitude and praise. Write that down because it's, it's, it's on your study guide. It's that little cardstock thing. You write it down. Nothing will raise your spirits more than gratitude and praise. Isn't that good? Why does that work? I'm going to show you in a second. It is a, she goes on, it is a positive duty to resist melancholy, discontented thoughts and feelings. As much a duty as it is to pray. Write that down. It's a duty to pray. But so is praise and gratitude. We're coming up to the Thanksgiving season. Come on. Keep reading. If we are heaven bound, how can we go as a band of mourners groaning and complaining all the Come on. Nothing will promote health of body and soul more than a spirit of praise and gratitude. You turn my morning into dancing. Here comes mental health nugget number two, and it's number three that will give us the how-to. Here comes number two. I love this. Song is a weapon we can always use against discouragement, depression. As we thus open the heart to the sunlight of the Savior's presence, we shall have health and His blessing. Song, you turn my morning into dancing again. You say, Dwight, you don't even know that song. How can I possibly learn it? Well, you can do what I do. Seriously, here's what I do. I just make songs up. No, I do. I don't need the words to rhyme. 
I don't think God needs the words to rhyme. He likes them to tunes. So I make up the tune and the song. Jesus, you're my best friend right now. Yes. Jesus, you're my best friend right now. Yes. Jesus, stay with me. Jesus, don't you go. Jesus, stay with me. That's what I do. I'm talking to him. I'm singing to him. I'm making up a song. That's all. That's all I'm doing. You can do that. Nobody's listening to you. And nobody cares, which is half the problem. But there's a song. Look, you know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. They won't all join you in singing, but it doesn't matter. You're not singing to them. You're singing to yourself. Song is a weapon against depressive discouragement. I'm pin you to the ground with that song. Okay, but here's the how-to. This is mental, finally mental health nugget number three. It is a law of nature. Come on, get this now. This is huge. It is a law of nature that our thoughts and feelings are encouraged and strengthened as we give them utterance. What you talk about, you become. Mm-hmm. While words express thoughts, whoo, flip the coin over. It is also true that thoughts follow words. Now, jot this down. What, what's the principle here? Feelings follow behavior. Write that down. Feelings follow behavior. So that's a little bracket I stuck in there. I'll explain that in a second. If we would give more expression to our faith, rejoice more in the blessed... Rejoice more in the blessings that we know we have, the great mercy and love of God. We should have more faith and greater joy. And I put it in brackets here. Talk faith until you have faith. It'll come. Behavior is to lead feelings. Feelings follow behavior. That's the key to living. That's it. That's the point she's making. You see, if you let your behavior, look, look, if you let your behavior follow your feelings, I'm sad, I feel sad, I feel sad, I feel sad. Guess how you behave? I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad. You can't help it. They're just responding. But you got to turn it around, say no feelings to the back of the line. I'm glad I'm praising, I'm happy in Christ. I'm glad I'm praising, I'm joyful in Christ. You behave that way, and guess what? Like obedient Children, they just step right in behind you, and now they feel the way you're behaving. So even when you don't feel like it, start dancing. Not where people can see it. Just start dancing. Start praising. And before you know it, your feelings will follow. Why? Because feelings follow behavior. That's how it works. Three mental health nuggets, which when you think about it, turns out to be true not only for the ancient King David, but listen to this, listen to this. It was also true for the living son of David. Come on, hold on, hold on. The son of David, when Jesus hung on the cross, what is happening at Calvary? That was a dark and terrible night, and Jesus is weeping. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's weeping. But he holds on in the darkness. He holds on. He reaches out by faith, and behavior leads feelings until finally when he dies, he says, Father, I commit my life, my spirit into your hands. Amen. What happened there? Weeping endured for the night. But by faith, 
Jesus knew there was a new morning about to break. And joy comes in the morning. Which means that really the song that we should be singing, put it on the screen, please. You've turned my morning into mourning. Just spell it differently. What you and I are mourning over right now, and we have a litany, all of us, what we are mourning over right now, here's the promise that with Jesus, He can turn our mourning into mourning. What's the morning? It's the morning of Jesus' resurrection. Is that not good news for us all? What's the morning? It's the morning of Jesus' return. Is that not good, to us all, good for us all? You turn my morning into mourning again. Behavior, you turn. You turned it. So whatever you're going through, my friends, and I'm looking out into faces that I know the answer to, whatever it is you're going through right now, don't give up. Do not, do not, do not give up. There's only one person in this universe that's trying to take you down. Don't give up. Lord Jesus, turn this morning in my life into the morning of your forever love and hope, I pray. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. I will dance in faith to what I just confessed to you. You've turned my morning into morning. And by the way, that's not only a private experience, that's a collective experience as well, to move from our morning to Jesus' morning, especially when it comes to racial reconciliation. May I talk to you for a moment before I sit down about that? For a month and a half now, our Racial Reconciliation Task Force, under the very able leadership of our friend Steve Yeagley, has been studying, praying over what proposal should Pioneer make to the New Life Fellowship. They're meeting in the seminary right now with my friend Michael Polite. They're packed out. There are people sitting all around. They don't have enough room. Just this Monday night, just this Monday night, the Racial Reconciliation Task Force stood before the Pioneer Memorial Church Board as the board listened very carefully to a set of reasons why this change, this time for this change, why the time has come. And the board re recognized we can't keep kicking this can around the block. Somebody has to start and let it be this generation. We need to move from a, from a, from a, from a system, from a time of injustice and an inequity to a system of righteousness and justice and in unity and in love with Christ and each other. If this generation kicks the can, it'll never happen. This is a golden moment for the human race, by the way. This may be the last golden moment America has. And why shouldn't it be here? So anyway, the board acted. You know why? I'm, let, me, let me put some words on the screen for you. Miroslav Volf, he's the well-known theologian and writer, Yale Divinity School. I'll put his words on the screen. There can be no redemption unless the truth about the world is told and justice is done. To treat sin as if it were not there when in fact it is there amounts to living as if the world were redeemed when in fact it is not. We have to act. We have to act. And so the Pioneer Board on Monday evening voted to support the task force proposal that we now pursue with New Life Fellowship 
A concept of worship on Sabbath in which this congregation can be reconfigured so that New Life Fellowship can be one of three worship services taking place. Very different worship services taking place with it beneath this ceiling, beneath this roof. Last, last Tuesday evening, we sat down with Michael Polite, the pastor of uh, New Life. And Steve and two others of us shared the board's decision to find a way to bring truth to the words that are chiseled atop the door of the Pioneer Memorial Church right there facing the campus. Put it on the screen if you've forgotten. We're praying for a way to become an house of prayer for all people. Those are our words. It defines our life. You turn my morning into dancing again. And so that's why we're calling for seven days of prayer. And I really need you to pull this out because this is beautifully done. Thank you, Pastor Jose, and thank you, Rochelle, off and back, our graphics. Uh, pull this out. This is, this is on the other side of a study guide. So just pull. it's a nice cardstock, which means you can keep it for seven days. This is an outline of what seven days that begin tomorrow, by the way. They begin tomorrow. They go all the way till next Sabbath when we gather for this festive, glorious Thanksgiving celebration we call Feast of Hymns. Don't miss it. And I have, a, I have another word for iGens. And so bring, if you've got iGen friends, bring them, bring them with you. This is about the seven days counting down to that uh, glorious uh, worship experience. And it's a, it describes 1 Corinthians 12, so no need for me to read it. It's suggesting three times a day we'll pray for the Spirit. And by the way, the church, the church is going to be open. You know, the usual hours, the campus buildings are open. So come on into this church. You want just a quiet place to, to uh, be alone with God, come here. It's open. Dwight, what about this uh, making it more intense? Okay, so you've got uh, four suggestions here for fasting. We're not requiring this of anybody because it's between you and God. But if you wanted to fast from some food, you could cut out some foods, and there's a whole list. You want to do social media fast, you could do that for seven days. You want to do immediate fast, you can do those for seven days. Sedentary fast, sit and, sit and still, get up and move your body every hour. You pick the fast. What a fast does is it, tell, it informs yourself, man, I'm really serious about this. I'm serious about this. Yeah. And then at the bottom, one for every day of this week, a chapter from Acts all the way up to Acts 7. Pray the theme. Read the chapter, then pray the theme. And when we get to the end of the week, we're just going to come and praise God from whom all blessings flow. You're praying for racial reconciliation and the path God wants best. So we're asking Him. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Seven days of prayer for racial reconciliation, for the common good of this campus. Why? Because it's time, that's why. Would you join me in this uh, seven-day seven day prayer journey? Come on. Would you? Hey, grab your Connect card. And would you just push, check the top box, the top box. Hey, Dwight, I will join you in these seven days of prayer. Yes, I will. I will join you. I, I hope everybody here says, yep, 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 yep. Anders Academy, yep, 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 yep. That's box number one. Box number two. What's box number two? I choose to cling to the promise that Jesus can turn my morning into morning. And like David, I wish to learn to trust him. Oh, me too. Check. What's box number three? I'll be able to join you at House of Prayer this Wednesday, 7 in the morning we have it, or 7 in the evening as part of our seven days of prayer. Yeah, I'll come. Come on. Join us. 7-7. Seven, seven, either way. Oh, and box number four. It's not there, but my friend June Price is coming up with something very special. Let me put it on the screen for you. She's calling these... This, this event's faith builders for the next few Tuesday evenings, 7 o'clock in the evening in the campus ministry's office, just a hunkering down and let's get serious about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. 
You're invited to come Tuesday evenings. God, God is ready for us. And I know our hearts are ready for him. And so I want to invite the ushers to stand. We're doing this now. We haven't been doing this, but we're going to receive the morning tithes and offerings as well. So if God has blessed you, thank you. A cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And they'll come by. But also put your Connect card. So just drop the Connect card as it comes by. And while they're coming by, we're going to sing a beautiful gospel hymn about we can, we can dance again. All right? But let's pray first. Oh, God. So here we are. We're not going to hurry out of here. We want to, we want to return to you what's yours. We want, to, we want to give you the praise, the total praise that is due you. And dear Father, you, through Jesus Christ our Lord, can turn our mourning into his mourning. Turn our mourning into mourning. Please do it. For those who are struggling, who are, who are pounding their fists against the wall of heaven that seems so tall, sweep down upon them through the mighty spirit and whisper to them, daughter, son, I know, I know the morning. I promise you the morning. For a generation that desperately needs to feel good about its own mental health, sweep down. I know, I know. I have a plan for you. You can dance again. Whatever it takes, dear Father, our lives are in your hands. Receive our morning tithes and offerings, even as we continue to sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.